welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going to be uh, in Psalm 139, among a lot of other texts today. But Psalm 139 is where we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of our time. And let me read just verses 1 to 6 in your hearing. Hear with me on this Thanksgiving Sunday, the Word of God. David wrote, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This is God's amazing, amazing word. May we understand his greatness just a little more as we hear it preached. Amen. You can be seated. For the last number of years, as your pastor, I've taken Thanksgiving weekends each year and broken away from my uh, usual expository teaching through whatever book we were in. And I've done some teaching on uh, why I'm thankful for the character of God. And I've taken uh, different, of w- different ones of what we call the attributes of God, and I've taught them to you. And we've touched on the power of God and the unchangeable nature of God and a lot of other things. And I want to talk with you today and give thanks for the omniscience of God. I want to thank the Lord for the fact that he is the all-knowing God. Now, when it comes to uh, the mastery of knowledge... We are with the the onset of the threat of AI, artificial intelligence, which made the news even this week in the sense that the company that's the most trusted with that technology underwent a, a revolution, and the person who wants to unleash it the most made his way back into command of that company, causing tremors among people that know better. But the, the, the release of technology and the invasion of, of uh, the information age makes the knowing of things a daily conversation. And man is, is able to reach his awareness into all kinds of aspects of his life that were never touched by awareness before. We know more about what we probably didn't need to know. And because of the corrupt character of man's heart, it's only going to lead to paths and places that we, we, we shouldn't go. But I began to look at the, the information revolution because I was caught in a, up in it like you were, especially when the internet age arrived in the mid to late 90s. Uh, and, uh, and of course, then the smartphone generation occurred, which, which just kind of unleashed 
the, the, the personal impact of the knowledge technology. And for years, I've, I've uh, looked over the fact that, that uh, we're now able to be tracked without our permission simply for the privilege of carrying one of these. And I've talked to you about this over the years, and I've researched it. And back when I first started looking at it a number of years ago, uh, I was uh, shocked but not surprised to find that if you have a smartphone, you have submitted yourself to 24-7 tracking, that even though they give you all these, uh, you, you can go online and find all these little steps to reduce the awareness of tracking in your settings, you cannot be untracked. You just can't. You know, this iPhone tracks my location and stores it in a hidden file whether I like it or not. So does my iPad. So does, so does your electronic device. It records your latitude and your longitude 24-7 as well as the length of time you stayed at any location and the time of the day when you were there. And that's all been since the introduction of iOS 4. Now, I don't even know. I keep resisting a download of the latest iOS. I think we're at 14 whatever. What is it? 17. Good Lord. I'm, oh, that, that, good. I've resisted the monster. <laughs> but every, every time you download, you get more targeted. It all happens through cell phone triangulation. So as, as you well know, you can't view any modern crime or detective show on, on streaming today without the, the tracking of a cell phone being the, the, the weapon that uncovers the culprit, right? Now, that information's not encrypted, according to what I've, I've researched, which means it's available on any computer that you syn synchronize your phone to. And anyone who has access to that computer or to your phone could learn where you've been and, where, and when you were there. And because it's not protected, it's also subject to hacking. So privacy no longer exists. And people are concerned about it, as, as they well should be. But I've got something that'll really drive you off track. If the idea that somebody might be able to track your every physical movement bothers you, here's something that'll really freak you out. God not only tracks your every physical movement, he tracks your every thought, according to what I just read. In fact, he tracks your every pre-thought. He tracks your every formed but never spoken thought. He is able to invade every element of your being, both tangible and intangible, and know everything about you. And now, among some people, that produces a, a, a fight-or-flight response. And that's what happened to Adam when, when, when God walked into the garden the morning after the great fall. And what did Adam do? With, because he knew that God knew. He hid from God in the Garden of Eden. And that's the natural inclination of fallen man, is to hide himself from being known. And certainly when he finds out that there is a God who knows infinitely more about him than he can imagine, he wants to hide. But rather than being freaked out by that, if you really understand the God of the Bible, this God who knows everything about you, and you understand to what lengths he went to know you and save you, and if you understood that, yes, he's a God of all knowledge, but he's also a God of all love, then, then it, it changes the equation for you. And once you understand his love through Christ, the thought of him knowing everything about you goes from being a threat to being a comfort. That's what I want to talk about today. Rather than running from God, you will, you will be running to him. Rather than fearing all that God knows about you, you will be counting on all that God knows about you and comforted by it. And indeed, as the psalmist said in Psalm 139 and verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. 
to know him and to know that his great heart of love and commitment to you is behind everything he knows about you. Oh, that makes this a very comforting doctrine, not a frightening doctrine, the all-knowing God, but a comforting one. And so what I want to do is is go into two aspects uh, of my message. The first is I want to explore what we mean when we say that God is an all-knowing God, the omniscience of God. Omni, all, and scientia, knowledge, the one who has knowledge of all reality. I want to go into exploring that, so you could call it the omniscience of God explored, and then the second thing I want to do is I want to go into the omniscience of God experienced. And I want to apply it into your walk and mine. So first of all, let's take a look at the truth explored. And, and we're going to take a look at a, at a definition. And you see it behind me. We're going to define it, and then I'm going to walk through the different aspects of it. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this. We're going to go into Psalm 139 chiefly, but there are some other passages among dozens in your Bible that open just a part of what we can understand about the fact that God knows all things. So what I did was I went to different theologians and biblical commentators, and I took a look at different passages from both Testaments, and I cobbled together... A, uh, a long sentence, which I'm prone to do, that's made up of parts that, as close as I can get, it puts together what these greater minds have said about the omniscience of God. Let me read it for you. God knows everything, period. I put the period there in each, in each phrase for a reason. God knows everything, period. If, you, if that was all you had time to learn, that's enough. All things actual and possible, period. That qualifies the aspects and, and the breadth of everything he knows. So God knows everything, period. In fact, he knows all things actual and possible, period. We'll explore that. He knows all things past, present, and future, period. So his knowledge spans all of time, all of space, the whole continuum of human experience. God knows everything at the same time, and nothing has ever occurred that he's not aware of. Nothing is happening right now that he's not in the presence of, and nothing will happen into eternity future that he hasn't already planned and doesn't already know. He's outside of time, therefore he's not captured by events. So God knows everything, he knows all things actual and possible. He knows all things past, present, and future. And he knows it all effortlessly and equally well. Effortlessly and equally well. Now this is captured in Psalm 139, but before we go there and, 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 and take it in its parts, there are some other places too, among dozens, like I said, that simply make the fundamental statement that everything knowable is known to God and more. So how about Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5? He determines the number of the stars. He gives to them, to all of them, their names Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Take a look at the last phrase. God knows everything, period. His understanding is beyond measure. How could it be beyond measure? Because he is beyond measure. He has a limitless capacity to know and understand. 
Now, reality is finite in a certain sense, so God can know it all, but he's outside of it at the same time. He created every aspect of the reality we live in, but he's outside of it. He is beyond measure himself, and therefore his understanding is beyond measure. He's infinite, so his knowledge is infinite. That's why he can know everything actual, but he can also know everything possible. Every permutation of possibility is the way I like to put it into a phrase. He knows every aspect of what could ever be, but wasn't. Because he, 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 there are no limits to who he is, and there's no limit to what he can know, and there's no limit to how he can know it. Now, I thought about that when it comes to heaven, which I look forward to going to more and more every day. Amen. And I thought, you know, in heaven... I'll have a perfect body like his, like Christ's resurrection body. I've taught you that many times. I'll have a sinless being. The flesh will be gone. The sin nature will be gone. But I will still be a finite person. The only infinite person is God. So I realized that throughout all of eternity yet to come, God will always know things that I don't. He will always know things that I have yet to find or discover. Even though my, my capacity to understand will be mega magnified, the time that I will have to understand will be mega magnified. He will always know things that I don't, and, so will you, and, and, and the same will be true for you. But then I realized that because I'm going to have a perfect body and because I'm going to have an unsin-hampered uh, unsin mind, even though I'm going to be finite, I will almost endlessly be learning throughout eternity. You ever put that together? There's always things that he knows that I will not because he's infinite and I'm not. There will always be more for him to reveal about everything to me. And so I will have eternity, which is, which is an endless stretch of existence, not time, but existence into an endless future. If you, we can't even put that into words. It'll never end. And so my ability to learn what he knows will never end. So there will always be something more for me to know. And I, I thought, well, I'm finite. Theoretically, this finite mind will get to the end of its finite capacity at some time in an infinite eternity and I'll run out of my capacity to know. I, I didn't used to think that, but I really, <laughs> I, I put some of my limited brain power to it this week, and I realized just by the sense of things, sometime into the stretch of eternity, because I will be perfect but finite, I, I will run out of the capacity to know. And so he will still know more than I do. Well, what's going to happen then? The only thing I could come up with in my small brain was, that, okay, once I get to the end of my capacity to learn somewhere out there in eternity future, then I'll have an eternity to start thinking about what I learned. <laughs> is, this, is this interesting? I think it's it. I fascinated myself with this yesterday. <laughs> I just did. I thought, boy, that's a zinger. You got to tell him about this. <laughs> yeah, somewhere at a point in time, theoretically, I'll run out. My, my hard drive will be full. A wonderful hard drive, a sinless hard drive, but a finite one. And what happens when my hard drive gets full? Well, then I'll have eternity to start thinking about what I've learned. 
Now, what happens when you start thinking about what you've learned? You won't know until you hit 18, but then you start, then you start thinking about what, what you learned. I was talking with somebody today. I said, I, I've, I've met some people that are almost like God. They're 16 and think they know everything. So please, I'm, I'm not dissing you guys that are 16 or whatever. I was. Ugh. But, but, but you, you can start thinking about what happens when you start thinking about what you thought you knew. It, what, what happens? Things expand. You begin to appreciate what you know. You begin to ponder what you know. It begins to affect you in certain ways of what you know. So I'll have an eternity, not only to l- learn everything I can learn, but then to spend eternity thinking about what I've known. And what happens when you think about what you know? What happens is you understand what you know more. And I have no idea when that's going to run out. But I'm thankful that heaven is not just about knowing things. It's about knowing him. And I'll have, I'll have a perfect capacity to worship him, to adore him, to understand him, to appreciate him, to be with him. I can't. I, he's, he's beyond description anyway. Anyway, now I've run off my little track. But the fact that you and I will be in the presence of one whose understanding is beyond measure is something amazing to contemplate. The point I was trying to make through this different scripture was that God knows everything. Only God could know everything because only he is infinite. Only he is outside of it all. And he has an infinite capacity to know. 1 John 3.20 puts it in a different light. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And (laughs) here's the simplicity of Scripture. And He knows everything. 1 John 3.20. What does the Bible say about what God knows? Everything. Period. There's a little, there's a period at the end of that sentence. He knows everything. Now this, this this is not only in the realm of the physical and the tactile and the visible, but this goes to the non-physical. He's talking here about the nature of a man's sense of himself, the nature of a soul's awareness of its sin, and the nature of of the domain of forgiveness. He's talking about the human heart. God knows that too. You ever find yourself praying, Lord, if you only understood what I'm going through? 1 John 3.20. He knows everything about the the wrestling of your soul, the doubts of your heart, the condemnation you're tasting, or whatever. God knows. He knows everything tactile and physical and invisible and personal. So when we go to our definition, and you can put it back up there, God knows everything. The scripture seems to bear that out. Now, let me go into some of the different aspects. Let's stay on the word everything there. Let's go back to Psalm 147.4. And it's interesting. The scripture argues in two directions about how much God knows, because we can't comprehend this. We live in a fishbowl awareness. And so we have no ability to understand just how much he knows. And so the scripture argues in two ways. The first way it argues is from the greater to the lesser. In other words, it says, you want to know how much God knows about you? And can God know all things? It, it says, it, it goes to the farthest stretches of the universe as an illustration. And says, if God can know everything about the farthest stretches of the physical universe, then he can know everything about you. And so the psalmist says, he determines the number of, their, of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. 
the number of the stars. And God just boom, threw them out there. And now, so, so that was, at, in, the, in the time of the writer, that was the, the greatest way to describe the ultimate in physical existence, the, the stars dotting the heavens. When you wanted to say big, that was, that was how you said it. That is, it's the ultimate stretch of human reality, the stars in the heavens. And he determines the number of the stars and gives to all of them their names. So he's arguing from the greater. He says, God knows all those things. Therefore, he can know everything. He just threw them out into existence. Now, at that time, they, they, they were stargazing, but without a telescope, I'm told, you can only see about 3,000 stars from any point on Earth. Only 3,000. But scientists estimate that the universe, as far as we've explored it, they estimate the universe contains at least 70 sextillion stars. Now that's 70,000 million, million, million. That's a number. That's seven followed by 22 zeros. Even the government doesn't have a number that big. <laughs> Yet. Think about that. I'll put it into a visible illustration. It has been estimated that seven followed by 22 zeros, 76 trillion stars, represents a number that's 10 times the number of grains of sand on planet Earth. Out there. And yet the scripture says he determines the number. We do not know how many stars are in the heavens. Guess who does? He does. He determined how many there would be at any point in time. God counts the number of the stars and he gives names to all of them. I love this. I was sitting down talking with somebody about this the other day. And I, and I bet God just didn't say, okay, you're star number one. You're star number two. And he's not, okay, you're star 76 trillion. No, he's a creative, limitless God. There's a meaningful name for every single one of them. What kind of a mind can do that? Well, David said it's without measure. So he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He says, if God can know all those things, he can know about you. He's the only one that can know everything about you like that. So he argues from the greater and the lesser. But then the Bible also argues from the lesser to the greater. He goes from the greatness of the universe's existence down to the smallest portion. Jesus did this in Matthew chapter 10 when he was trying to drive home to the disciples that they, as God's children, were infinitely important to him. He would never forget them. He would care for every one of their needs. They didn't have to stress about, about what they were going to eat or what they were going to put on. They were to seek first the kingdom of God and not worry about how God was going to provide for them in frightful times. And he says, the reason you don't have to worry is because God knows everything about you. And he goes into nature, and in Matthew 10, 29, Jesus was reasoning here. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So now he's arguing from the lesser. In the animal world, the most worthless animal, apparently, in their economy at that time was a sparrow, because they were everywhere in, in Israel. And they were everywhere, and they were a nuisance. And when you were really poor, if you only had a penny... 
you could go into the marketplace and what there were little businesses where they would trap these sparrows with these nets, kill them. And this gets a little gross, but then they'd fry them and they put them on a little stick. And if you were hungry and you were poor and you only had a penny, you could walk into the marketplace and stop and buy lunch and you could buy two roasted sparrows for a penny. They were everywhere. I mean, that's about the lowest you can get in the animal kingdom, I'm thinking. You know, and so Jesus said the most meaningless animal of all. Maybe he was walking through a marketplace as he was teaching. But not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God pays attention to even the most overlooked and meaningless of the animal kingdom. And he'll pay attention to you. And then... He takes it even further in the next verse, verse 30. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Stars in the sky, 76 trillion of them, all named, all numbered. Now he goes and he argues from the lesser. He goes to the smallest aspect of human existence that they knew. They were a pre-microscopic generation, obviously. And, and, and I'm told from, from what I've read that the, the human hair was believed to be the smallest aspect of physical reality that they thought existed. They had no understanding of cells and of anything else. And so when they wanted to talk about the smallest thing in the world... They would take the human hair. That was the smallest thing their visible eyes could see. Human hair, by the way, is 50 micrometers. That was the smallest aspect of physical reality. And so Jesus reasons from the smallest thing they knew. And he said, he's aware of the smallest aspect about you. And he's numbered every hair on your head. I mean... We, we could take that whole illustration and add even more power to it today because we've gone, they, they, went, they were in the visible age. Then some centuries later, we went to the microscopic age, didn't we? And we discovered, oh, wait a minute, a, a hair, a strand of hair is made up of cells. We put it on a slide and began to look at it and see cells that make up the body of this physical structure. Then the microscopes got better and the science got deeper and we found out that cells are made up of molecules, Right? And we began to understand how molecular life came together. And then all of a sudden, a hundred years ago, we shattered the, the ceiling of understanding that and we came into the atomic age. And we discovered that the atom for, was believed for many years to be the smallest unit of physical structure, of physical matter, the atom. So we went from the visible to the cellular to the molecular to the atomic. And then it wasn't too long after we got to the atomic that we came to the subatomic, didn't we? Class, protons, neutrons, and... Okay, some of you guys were the ones that I was copying off of. And by, yeah. Yeah, subatomic. That's where we were when I went to school. But I've since learned from more learned people than me that there, is now, there are now levels to the subatomic and they didn't understand that protons and, and, and neutrons actually have parts too. And there, there is actually an entity that, that makes up a proton and a neutron and a proton and a neutron each have three different parts. And they have given a name to that little component that makes up the, th the three parts of every proton and neutron, and the name is quark. Quark. Isn't that wild? 
I mean, God names stars. With, I'm sure he has the most impressive names imaginable. Here we are, thousands of years of human existence, and the scientists, they, they make this discovery, and the best name they can come up with for it is a quark. Excuse me? I was excited to learn, since the last time I studied this, that they've actually done some more research on this, and they found that the, the proton and neutron structure of the female human is made up of quarks, but they discovered that the proton and neutron structure of men is made up of quarks, and that's... <sighs> All right. It's a holiday weekend. I have to do something to keep you going. If you understand what I mean. So... God can go with, the, he can do this all day long. He can argue from the lesser all day long and say, listen, I know things you don't. I, I'll go deeper than, I mean, take the DNA sequence, for example. There's an author named Richard Swenson, uh, a medical doctor, and he did some research on how complex people are. Just going, he, he was reasoning from the lesser to the greater about how much God knows. How about a DNA sequence? The DNA sequence of the human genome is so massive for each individual being in this room today. If the DNA sequence of, the, of your human genome, your sequence only, was compiled into a set of thousand-page books, the equivalent of 200 volumes would be needed to hold all the DNA information about you. 200,000-page books. Now, to read a person's genome sequence out loud without stopping would take nine and a half years to finish. Now, he says at a more realistic pace of a 40-hour reading week, where you took weekends off and you went to sleep at night, if you wanted to read a person's genome sequence, it would take 132 years to finish. So the next time somebody looks at you and says, I can read you like a book... <laughs> To say, no way, you've only known me 30 years, it'll take at least another hundred. And then duck because they'll be throwing the book right at you. But you see, it, it would take us 132 years to finish what Psalm 139 says God authored in a magical, conceiving moment. And yet here we stand in judgment upon God and upon when life begins, upon what a life should be to qualify as a life. We begin to stick our dirty fingers into the petri dish of God's secret and majestic creation. And we begin to delve into the mysterious place that he and he alone bears the rights as creator and sovereign God. And we don't think judgment is coming upon a planet and a society that purports to, to wander into the place of God. Our arrogance is beyond imagining. Well, God knows it all. 
He threw the stars out into space and knows them. He formed you intimately and designed you and knows you. If he knows all that, then he truly can know everything. Just a little bit more on this definition because I want you to finish catching the majesty that you can. He knows everything, full stop. He also knows everything actual and possible. Now we'll go to Psalm 139 into the passage. Psalm 139, everything actual. He knows everything that happens. He knows everything that is. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. This is Psalm 139.1. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. And don't tell me every time you've read that psalm, you haven't had the thought suddenly strike you. Wow, I just sat down in my favorite Lazy Boy recliner in this room, in this place, on planet Earth at this time, and God knew. He knew it before it happened. He knows where I am right now. He knows everything actual. You know when I sit down, and he knew when, knows when you're going to finish and when you're going to rise up. He knows when you're going to shift in your seat in this auditorium and put your right arm over the back of that chair. Don't try it. He already knows. He knows. He knows everything simply that way. It's so simple. It's so, it's so every day. It's so in the moment. But David was struck by the fact that God knew his physical moments. He knew the actuality of his physical existence. And then he said, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. He knows where you're going to be physically. He knows what your plans are and are acquainted with all my ways. I look at the all my ways and I just think he knows everything about where you are physically, wherever you are. And he knows everything about that loved one that's on your heart this Thanksgiving weekend who you have not seen and maybe because of estrangement you cannot see and you're worried about them and you're praying for them. Don't worry. God knows they're lying down and their ways and he's with them and caring for them. Oh, my God knows everything and he knows all things actual and possible. He knows all my ways and all their ways. So that's the actual part. He knows where you are, what you're doing. He knows where you are at any place, any point in time, even though you feel forgotten or unknown. But then he gets to the possible, verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That's possible. That's, he knows, like I said, this is a God who not only knows your thoughts, he knows your pre-thoughts. He knows what you're thinking about saying, but you never say. So he knows everything possible. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. It just blows my mind that God knows everything actual and possible. He knows everything that, that uh, I, I'm thinking about doing. He knows everything that that, I, that I, I will not do, but I'm contemplating. Like I said, every permutation of possibility. He knows everything that could have happened, but didn't. All throughout history. He knows every plan that you made that didn't come through. He knows everything actual and possible. Everything you ever wanted to say, but didn't. Everything you thought, but didn't know he knew. Wow. 
Then he goes to all things past, present, and future. That's verse 5. You hem me in. In other words, he is present in every aspect of your experience. Behind and before. Behind, that's your past. That's every past experience. God knows because God was there. And before, that's every future experience. God knows because he's already there. You don't know it. You have no idea what it's going to be like. You have no idea if it'll even arrive. God does. He's already there because he's outside of time. And you lay your hand upon me. So how does this work? God is outside of time. Therefore, the past, the present, and the future are all the same to him. The, The future never arrives to God. He's already there. The past never fully departs from God. He's already there. He's still there. And your present is a place where he can lay his hand upon you. He is effortlessly there. It's just astounding. So the psalmist here goes through the fact that God knows everything actual, everything possible, and everything past, present, and future about you. And then he knows it effortlessly, and that's verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. That's because God is immense. Remember, I, I began the whole teaching today by stating that, that, that he is without limit in time or place. So if he, he say, if, if I died and I, and I went to heaven, you would be there already. You'd be present with me there just like you're, here, you're present with me in my physical life. If I died and didn't know you and I went to hell, if I went to the depths of the earth where the unbelieving dead go, you'll be there too. People say, is God present in hell? Absolutely. In his wrath, he's withholding his grace and mercy because the time for that is over. But he'll be there. There's no place he cannot be. And he does it effortlessly. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the psalmist was writing about, he he was watching a sunset, perhaps on the the edge of Judea there, on the the, the Caesarean coast, which is now Gaza, unfortunately. And and, and that part part of Israel where you you looked out over the the ocean, he might have been sitting there with the sunrise coming up at his back, and and the sun was shooting over him with these rays shooting out, and that was the most magnificent expression of physical reality the psalmist had ever seen. The the, the rays of of the emerging sun were shooting over his head, and they were shooting across the sky, and without our scientific knowledge, he would have no real knowledge of what was on the other side, but he saw the rays of light, and that was the most powerful demonstration to him of of physical reality and power and speed. And he thought, if I could get on one of those sunbeams and let it carry me all the way beyond the horizon to whatever is there, God. In other words, if I could go to the farthest part of the sea, to the remotest part of the sea, to a place that I can't even imagine, if I I went as far away as I could and let you take me there, you'd be there waiting for me on the other side. Because you're immense. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall lay hold of me. Effortless, because he's always there. Effortlessly. And equally, there's no aspect of of awareness or knowledge he doesn't have, and there's no place that's hidden from his understanding. Amazing. 
So let's go back to our definition, and then I'm going to get to how this can change your experience. God knows everything, period. All things actual and possible. All things past, present, and future, and he knows them effortlessly and equally well. And so you say, okay, um, you've taken me to the edges of the immensity of who God is. (sighs) But I live in a small world where half of what I live through is forgotten and unknown. But the challenges are still larger than me. Bring this down to where I'll be waking tomorrow morning. I'm going to give you five things. Five things in which this truth can change your experience. And they're really understandings like I usually do with conclusions. Here's the first. If God knows all things, he knows what you've done and he can forgive you. Now, I have to start here because there's always a mixture of people in my audiences. There are some, there are many that know him as savior, many that are at peace with God, but some others are not there yet. And they don't understand that though he is an all-knowing God, he's also an all-holy God. He knows you and he is a perfect God and therefore he knows what you have done. He knows your sin. People often tell me who don't know the Lord and they talk about meeting God someday after physical death. And they talk about challenging their way into heaven by pointing to others and say, well, I I know some things that they've done and I never did that. So on balance... But you see, um, God's the only judge in existence who never needs to call a witness because he's always been there. He's always been the witness in your life. Remember? Past, present, and future. Behind, before, and you've laid your hand on me. So when God judges people that have refused his love through Christ... He won't have to call a witness. Now, books will be open that will record all your deeds and all your thoughts, and they'll be brought out to condemn you. Who do you think wrote the book? God did, because he knew everything, every every step of your rebellion against him. And therefore, when you stand before God and you want to argue your way into heaven, he won't call a witness. He is the witness, and his own record will be open before you. And, you're, and, and the Bible says every mouth will be stopped. I mean, that's the way it is. Now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, that's a frightful thought. Hebrews chapter 4 says this in Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked, and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. That's a truth I can't alter, friend. That's overwhelming to me, but it's a truth I can't mark out of my Bible. And if you have no answer for all that he knows, it's a frightful thing to know that God knows everything about you you feel under the weight of it a tremendous sense of exposure. And it's meant 
It's meant to press on you until you deal with it. Sometimes a relentless gaze can be the worst torture in life. The Marquis de Lafayette was a French aristocrat and military officer who fought for the United States in the American Revolutionary War. After helping America in its, what I think was just revolution, he returned to France and found his country in the midst of a bloody and destructive revolution, and he fought against the revolution in his own country. After the storming of the Bastille, Lafayette was captured, and he spent more than five years in a prison cell before he was released. He would later recount that his captors added a special kind of torture to the five years he spent there in the thick wooden door of his cell. They carved a little hole, and then they stationed a sentry at that hole 24-7, a guard every eight hours, and that guard's sole responsibility was to look through that hole without stopping. Lafayette, every moment of every day for five years, all he could see was the soldier's eye in that hole in the door. Always there day and night, every moment when he looked up, he always saw that eye. He would later say that was the most dreadful part of it all. There was no escape, no hiding. When he lay down and when he rose up, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so, therefore, if you're without, if you're without an answer for all that he knows, one day you will give an account. So, if God knows everything you've done, that can be a source of crisis if you've not made peace with God, and you need to think about that. But his, listen to this. It can be a source of comfort if you have made peace with God. Because you see, right after verse 13 in Hebrews 4 is this statement. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What's our confession? Oh, I know God who knows everything I've ever done, but who put everything I'd ever done upon his Son. And he made peace for me. He not only knows everything I've ever done, he knows where he placed it, on the shoulders of his son. That's my confession. I don't hide my sin. I placed it where it belongs, at the foot of the cross. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like I said at the beginning of my message, knowing a God who knows everything about you that can create panic or trust, fear or love, crisis or comfort. It just depends on who you know. Do you know his son? This one who knows everything about you. Oh, that's why you must know him, because he knows you. 
And you know, once you've taken his son as your savior, he can never bring up anything against you again. A.W. Tozer, in his marvelous works on the attributes of God, said this, nothing can ever come to light in the believer's life that would surprise God and cause him to cast him out. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet from our life to expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our character can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us utterly before we knew him and he called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. End of quote. Oh, he knew everything I've ever done and he put it all upon the son of his love. There's nothing left for me to answer for. Praise God. So he knows what you've done, and he can forgive you. Have you come and received that forgiveness, dear friend? Here are the last four, and we're going to run now. Second part of my experience this can affect is that uh, I can know that he knows where I am. He knows where you are, and he can help you. We've already gone over this at length, the fact that David said in Psalm 139 that you know, my, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. I love that. He knows where you are in your physical existence. He knows whatever situation you're in, and he knows the thoughts of panic that are going through your mind. He knows everything. And into that, he can come with his grace and his rescue and his care and his presence And don't you ever think that you're too ordinary for him to pay attention to? Oh, no. You bear the blood of his son. You're not too ordinary for God to pay attention to. This is why miracles are such a wonderful thing. They're not only a demonstration of the power of God, but they're a reminder whenever they come that he knows exactly where you are. Think about it. If you've walked with the Lord for some time, he's probably put you in some extreme situations where you needed a miracle. I know that's been true for me multiple times. Miracle of financial provision that he is the only explanation for. A miracle of a physical or medical turnaround that left the doctor saying, huh. A miracle of a job you shouldn't have gotten a miracle of a turn in the heart of someone alienated from you that you never thought would happen. Miracles are amazing things. And when they happen, you go, Lord! But they're also a sign. I mean, every time he does one of those in my life, it's sort of like he's saying, ping! (laughs) Hey, I know where you are. I've never forgotten you. He knows where you are, and he can help you. Call out to him. He already knows you need to. Here's the third. He knows what you need, and he can provide for you. Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Jesus said about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body. What you'll put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. Here he goes again. 
They're the smallest of creatures. There's gazillions of them. Did you know that Israel is known as, as one of the, the places where the population of birds for that place in the planet, there's more birds there than any other place on earth. I, I'm talking even like, the, like, like Africa and places where the, the jungles team because it's a migratory place where, where the world just crisscrosses all the bird population. Who knew? There might have been birds floating through, floating behind Jesus' head when he preached it or settling into the, in the trees behind us. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. There's so many of them. Who would pay attention to them? They're nothing. Yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Oh, yes, you are. Here we are in a situation where the best economic news over Thanksgiving weekend was that guess what? We might not have a hard landing into a recession. Instead, we're just going to have a soft landing into things staying exactly the way they are. Interest rates are going to stay where they are. All these prices that got jacked up in the last five years, they're not going down anytime soon. Good news. It's not going to get any worse. Oh. Uh-huh. If it does get worse, he knows it's going to get worse. And you won't stop belonging to him when it does. Neither will I. Neither will we. He knows what you need and he can provide for you. Last two. If he knows everything, actual and possible, if he knows everything physical and he knows every moment of thought and every emotion that ever surges through you, he knows what you've suffered and he can comfort you. Well, I'll tell you, this is precious. Psalmist wrote Psalm 56, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Did you have a sleepless night last night? He knows every turn. Every moment when you woke up and walked out into the front room and sat in the recliner and went over it and over it to try and get it off your heart. Or your physical illness kept you to where you just couldn't quite slip away into sleep again. You have kept count of my tossings. I guarantee you nobody else has, but he we will. Put my tears in your bottle. That's a curious phrase. The closest that I've seen anybody come to it, the people that I've researched said back in in the times of Israel over the centuries, when somebody experienced a death in the family, they would hire professional mourners. People who didn't know, the, they didn't have to know the family or the person that died, but it was a sign of dishonor if you didn't have at least one person present at your funeral to weep for you. And some families were isolated, what have you. And so you could hire professional mourners and they would come. Jesus encountered them multiple times in the Gospels. Threw them out. <laughs> Every house he was in, but he encountered them. And uh, when the mourners would come, you'd have to pay them at the end of the funeral. And the more they impressed you with the fact that they mourned well, the more you would pay them. And there was a custom 
that when they cried and they could actually work up tears, they had built the skill, they would take a little bottle and put it under their eye on their cheek and they would drain some tears into that bottle. At the end of the funeral, they'd put the bottle on your doorstep or your kitchen table, showing that they'd mourned well. I don't know if that's what is directly behind this, but I think it is. God knows. He's counted every tear you've ever shed, particularly in service or suffering for him. He'll put your tears in his bottle. He always has. Are they not in his book? And someday, he'll remember them. You may not agree, but this is one of the wonderful things that I believe is going to happen at the great reward ceremony for believers. After the rapture and before eternity and every, all that begins to really roll, I think he'll remember us there. Nobody may, not, may remember you right now. You might be as isolated as you can imagine, but if you know him, he sure knows you, and he won't forget your sorrows. Here's the last. If he knows all things actual and possible, he knows what you ought to do in this decision that's facing you, and he can guide you. He knows everything about what could happen and should happen, and he already knows all outcomes. It's just, this is why, the, by the way, it's... It, you can't give God advice. Is that, that hasn't occurred to you yet. <laughs> Romans 11. This is a passage that caps the wonderful description that Paul made of the sovereignty of God and salvation over several chapters. The marvel of his saving grace and his plan for eternity. And Paul gets to the end of it and he's overwhelmed with the greatness of God's sovereign love and he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He's planned out everything, including your salvation. If he can be trusted in the greatness of all of that, he certainly knows everything about what you ought to do next in your walk with him. Who can become his counselor? The rhetorical question answers itself. No one. But he is the counselor. Not saying you're going to like his response. But he is in his immensity, all of these things. Well, this is our Lord. Let me just read to you a summary again from a book that's helped me a lot, A.W. Tozer, on the attributes of God. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, 
all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, all motion, all space, all time, all life, all death, all good, all evil, all heaven, and yes, all hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. What a statement. He never discovers anything. It's not interesting when he says here, Tozer. In other words, nothing ever occurs to God. You'll never hear him say, huh. (laughs) He never discovers anything. Then he says he is never surprised and never amazed. In other words, and some of you have told me this in passing, that you will never hear from the lips of Almighty God the phrase, whoa, I never saw that coming. (laughs) Never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything nor does he seek information and ask questions. He is the all-knowing God. And if you're his, that's a great comfort. So God knows everything. And he knew millions of years before he created the world that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins, didn't he? 1 Peter 1.20, he was chosen, this Jesus, before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. The birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus were not by accident or happenstance. They were the result of a divine plan, weren't they? A plan God set in place an eternity ago to provide us a way to have a personal relationship with him. So, the question is not, what does God know about you, but what do you know? about God. Do you know him as your saving friend? This Thanksgiving weekend, if you don't, oh, come to him. Admit your sin for what it is and seek him for the Savior he've always known him to be. 